right, so we're going to stick with that same idea of recognizing Jesus and think about how John the Baptist helps us to do that. Uh, John has a tremendously important role in preparing the way for the Messiah. So I want to think about John's life in three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the end. So we think about the beginning of John's life when he had an amazingly significant birth, the middle when he prepared the way for others to know Jesus, and then the end when John himself faced very ordinary human doubts. So first, the beginning. Uh, John the Baptist had a very special and significant birth. So I want to do a little exercise together. Uh, you're going to need a pen and paper for this. Uh, if you didn't have one with you, there should be pencils in the pews in front of you, um, and there should be little scraps of paper as well. Uh, if you don't find paper there, I will this once allow you to write on the back of a Connect card. Um, but yeah, find something to write with and something to work on. So most of you have it. Here's the exercise. I want you to write down a list of everyone in the Bible you can think of who was a miracle baby. A list of everyone in the Bible you can think of who was a miracle baby. And you can interpret that fairly broadly. We can include anyone who was born to a mother who was barren, or was past childbearing age, or was born in answer to a specific prayer. Okay, but how many can you think of uh, people in the Bible who were miracle babies? six. All right, cool. Well, that's good. It's good for you who got one five. Um, so I used Google, and I think I got ten. <laughs> and not including Adam and Eve. Um, all right, so in the Old Testament, let's go chronologically. Uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Esau were both an answer to a prayer, and Joseph also was an answer to a prayer. Um, I would tentatively include Moses, who was not a miracle baby, but he was saved as a baby, uh, miraculously. Well, that's, that's arguable. Um, then Samson, we read about today, um, and Samuel the prophet, who was born to Hannah. Uh, and then the last one I could find in the Old Testament was the son who was born to the Shunammite woman in answer to Elisha's prayers in 2 Kings 4. Big points if you got here. <laughs> Um, and then in the New Testament, I only found two, John Baptist and then, of course, Jesus. So um, if you count Moses, that's 10. If you count Adam and Eve as well, that's 12. Something in that order, all right? Anybody think of anybody I didn't say? Solomon? Remind me why Solomon would be a miracle baby. Okay, yeah, it's redemptive. I don't think it was miraculous in the sort of human sense. I mean, in the sense of the mechanics of childbirth. <laughs> um, but yeah, redemptive, certainly. But something in that order, okay? Good. Um, all right, so thinking of that list, um, that's a small enough list to be significant, right? But it's a large enough list that we can start to think about patterns. 
Um, and we can see that there's a striking number of miracle babies early on in the story. So in Genesis, in the family of Abraham, every generation of the patriarchs has a miracle, at least one miracle baby. And they get fewer through the rest of the Old Testament. And there's a similar pattern in the New Testament. The only two are right at the beginning of the story. When we think about John the Baptist's birth, it's, it's strongly reminiscent of not one, but three of the others. Okay? So um, you can take a look at the Bibles now at Luke chapter 1. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke 1. Uh, and we're going to look at the promises surrounding John the Baptist's birth and see why it's similar to three of the Old Testament miracle babies. Um, so let's start at verse 18 in Luke 1. After the angel promises him a child, Zechariah replies, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Right? So, of course, we hear right away that sounds exactly like Abraham and Sarah all over again. There's a faithful married couple who's been barren their whole lives, long past the age of childbearing, and they're now being promised a son. Back in that story, Abraham named his son Isaac. All right? Anyone know what Isaac means? Laughter, yeah, laughter, or he laughs. Um, and I, Abraham named him that because of the sheer joy and indeed the sheer comedy of having a child at their age. Um, and then here in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel says about John in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. So we see the repeated themes of both old age and joy linking the two stories together. But then John is also like Samson. So we read today about Samson's birth announcement from Judges chapter 13. And Samson's mother was barren, but one day she met an angel who told her that she would have a special baby who was to be a Nazarite. And according to the law of Moses in Numbers chapter 6, a Nazarite was someone who took a special vow of holiness to the Lord and marked it by not drinking any wine or touching strong drink, not ever cutting his hair, um, and not touching any dead bodies either. And there are only a couple of references to Nazarites in the whole rest of the Old Testament. And the only Nazarite we know of with a name is Samson. Um, in Judges 13 verse 4, the angel says to Samson's mother, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we remember Samson for his famous strength, his great physical strength, and that came from the power of the Holy Spirit that came to him through his Nazarite vow, right? Um, and through that great strength, Samson began to save Israel from the Philistines, according to the angel's words. He didn't finish the job. We see historically that King David finished the job, this battle with the Philistines, but Samson did begin it. Um, and in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah in verse 15 that John will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So it doesn't say exactly that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He might have been, but we can see that his life was similarly <laughs> set apart to God and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose that John would begin to save Israel. Like Samson, John grew up to be something of a wild man. He was rough and rugged and hairy and an outcast from normal society, and he changed a lot of people's lives. 
So John is a miracle baby, a lot like Isaac, and also a miracle baby, a lot like Samson. And thirdly, he's also a lot like the prophet Samuel. He's like Samuel because his birth was announced in the temple in the presence of a somewhat faithless priest. <laughs> now, I hope you remember the story of Samuel. Hannah came to the temple to pray for a child, and the priest Eli was there in the temple uh, while she was there, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And Eli saw Hannah praying silently, and he thought that she was drunk. Remember that? Uh, her lips were moving wordlessly. And here in Luke 1, after the priest Zechariah failed to believe the angel Gabriel, his lips moved wordlessly until his son was born. Samuel, the prophet, was one of the first great prophets of the Bible, and he became the kingmaker. He anointed both King Saul and King David, Israel's first kings. John the Baptist has often been called the last Old Testament prophet, and he also was a kingmaker with the job of heralding and baptizing the son of David, Jesus, the last king of Israel. So I hope you can see from this that the people who lived in the first century had a really good chance of recognizing the significance of John if they knew their Bibles. The better they knew their Bibles, the better they would understand what God was up to. This is recognition based on description. It's a bit like me and my friend Ruth at the airport, and it still works for us today. The better we know our Bibles and the stories of God's works in the past, the more chance we have of understanding what he's up to in our own lives. So I challenge you, friends, to make the Bible the book you know best in the world, to read it and study it until you can open up your Bible anywhere and feel comfortable that you know what's going on there. Okay, so the first thing to remember about John the Baptist was that he was a miracle baby. He had a highly significant birth. There are only two miracle babies in the New Testament, just John and Jesus. And we need to see just how different those two were, okay? So to first century Jews, John's birth was obviously significant. God was clearly up to something here. All the right signals were there. It was announced by an angel in the temple to a faithful priest who had been elected for duty in the proper way. Zechariah and Elizabeth had the right pedigree. Zechariah was a priest in the division of Abijah, and she was a direct descendant of Aaron. The announcement was marked by an obvious miracle, the silencing of Zechariah, and it was easily recognizable as fitting the established patterns of the Old Testament. So the people saw right away that God was up to something here, and it says in verse 65 of Luke chapter 1, after John was born, fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So John's birth was the talk of the whole town. John was kind of a bit like Harry Potter, the first century, right? The boy who lived, the one that all the prophecies were about. And news of his miraculous birth spread all around the country, and people rejoiced and feared God. Contrast this with Jesus. Jesus also had a miraculous birth, announced by the same angel Gabriel, but it wasn't in the temple. It wasn't to a priestly family, it was to a poor family, and it didn't follow any of the clear Old Testament patterns. So it didn't make news. It seems that Mary didn't tell many people about her experience, but treasured them up in her heart, so hardly anyone had any expectations of Jesus in his early life. 
today, when we look back, we think of Jesus as obviously great and John as a bit weird. But I think it was pretty much the other way around for first century Jews. John was obviously great. Jesus, hmm, not so sure. So it's very important that John testifies to Jesus. When John does that, he gives Jesus his own credentials in the eyes of the Jewish public. So let's move on now to the middle of John's life. In all four Gospels, we hear about John's ministry of baptism, which was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And how John baptized all kinds of people, from the very lowly to the very powerful, including Roman soldiers. And John wasn't afraid to challenge the powerful who were abusing their power and to publicly condemn them. And we know that John himself baptized Jesus too, right at the start of Jesus' public ministry. And when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John was reluctant to do it. Do you remember that? In all the world, there was only one person who John was reluctant to baptize. One person. He was too great. So if the scribes came, if the Pharisees came, if the king came, or if the high priest himself came to John to be baptized, and if they came humbly, John would have baptized them, right? But Jesus? John didn't want to do it. Jesus was too great. John said, should I be baptizing you? Should rather you not be baptizing me? And when Jesus arrived, John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said of Jesus, One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. And then when John's disciples started leaving to follow Jesus, John said, That's how it should be. He must increase. I must decrease. So notice then how the man with all the pedigree, the public image, the following, and the spiritual credibility handed all that over to someone else, to the one who deserved it. John handed it over to Jesus, and many people listened to John, and they followed Jesus because of John's witness. John really did begin to save Israel. So it was like John was at the airport telling everyone else which guy out of all the hundreds of arrivals they were supposed to drive home. And how different that was from the attitude of the priests and the Pharisees themselves, who clung onto their power and refused to acknowledge Jesus, who indeed killed Jesus out of spite, just like Herod tried to, when they knew full well that they had no case. And then they went ahead and made it an excommunicable offense in the temple to ever say that Jesus was the true Messiah. So when you compare these two opposite responses of John versus the Pharisees and priests, how impressive is it that John gladly yielded over his status to Jesus, that he was content to shrink from the public spotlight, and how important was this role in directing people to their true savior. John's actions saved the lives of thousands of people back then, and rippling down through time, hundreds of millions by now. While on the other hand, the actions of those first century priests and Pharisees, with their lies and their plots, have by now killed millions of people, and sent millions of people unprepared to the judgment seat of God. How serious a thing this is. How important it is that we take whatever credibility we have with other people and direct their attention to where it belongs. 
saying with John, he must increase, I must decrease. And how seriously we sin if we try to hold people's attention on ourselves instead. This is a matter of life and death. John chose to decrease so that he could give other people life. He helped people to recognize their true Messiah, their true King and Savior, and his reward for it on earth was a very ignominious death. So let's finish with the end of John's story. And I always find the end of John's story and his life very sad. John the Baptist challenged King Herod, I'm losing my thing here, anyway. John the Baptist challenged King Herod Antipas on his public adultery with his brother Philip's wife. All right, so the king was having adultery with his brother's wife. And think about Israel and their standards of holiness. Do you think anybody thought that was tolerable? <laughs> was that not a scandal to everybody in the country from the high priest down to the lowliest Jewish peasant? But the only person in the country who would stand up and say that was John the Baptist. And when he said it, he was put in prison and nobody Nobody came to defend him. He was put in prison as being the only voice in Israel that stood up for truth and decency. And first he was imprisoned, and then finally John gave up his head as the bounty to a narcissistic king who allowed his rampant lust to trap him in a ridiculous vow. It's such a bloody-minded, meaningless way for a holy man of God to die. Remember, friends, this is Harry Potter. This is the boy who lived. This is the one full of the Holy Spirit, who God gave to Israel in answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. This was their miracle baby, like Isaac and Samson and Samuel. There have only been 10 or 12 in the whole of history of God's people. And John was dispatched with so carelessly, not even deliberately, a victim of spite and lust and sovereign stupidity. And unlike Jesus, his death meant nothing. It did nothing. It was just his own sad, lonely, inglorious death. I really hate the end of John's story. And uh, it's maybe even made worse by the last words that we hear from John, a message that he delivered to Jesus in prison by his few remaining disciples. John sent a message to Jesus asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And it's not entirely clear why John was asking this. There's room to interpret the question either hopefully or despairingly, but in light of John's early confidence, I interpret it despairingly. In other words, I really thought you were the one who was to come, but now it looks like I might have been wrong. I wonder if you've had the experience of hanging all your hopes on Jesus, putting all your eggs in that basket, only to come to the point of wondering, was I right? Was I right? I know I have had that experience myself. And when I think about it, it gives me a lot of confidence and comfort to know that even the great John the Baptist had a crisis of faith at the end while he languished in prison cell with no one to defend him. Jesus' answer to John is gentle. He gently reminds John, look at the physical evidence that's in front of your eyes. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. <coughs> and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
And as I think about this answer, I really think it would have worked for John. I really think it would have reassured him and encouraged him. It's everything that the Old Testament promised would happen when the Messiah came, and John would have had his faith restored by this answer. But when we think about it, Jesus is telling John now to lean on his own experience, what his own eyes have seen, and to interpret that properly through the lens of Scripture. And I think as we close, that's a good word for us too, because for us all, crises of faith are sure to come. And we need to have our own ways of recognizing the truth that's based on the evidence our own eyes have seen. So for you yourself, are you building your own history with God? Reasons that you know God for yourself, know what he's like, experiences of his work in your life, and answers to prayers. Do you keep records of these things? Do you pay attention when your cries are heard and your prayers are answered? Do you have places you can go where you remember the work of God on your behalf so that when the flood waters rise and threaten to sweep your faith away, you can reach down with your feet and find something solid to stand on, something that's not based merely on the witness of someone else or a book that you've read. It's not just your parents' faith or your pastor's faith or your friend's faith. It's your faith. Can you pick Jesus out of the airport crowd even when no one else can? Because when we can, that's when we know that we are prepared for his coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.